I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brent Kermelitic and today we are honoured to have in our virtual studio Dr. Davina Jackson. Dr. Davina Jackson is an international writer and promoter of creative applications of post-internet technology for urban development and pan-Pacific architecture, geography and history. Her latest book is Australian Architecture History, uh, released by Alan Unwin uh, earlier this year, um, which we will be talking about today. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Dr. Davina Jackson. Thanks, Branko. Nice, nice to be here. So you've published well, a few books, <laughs> quite a lot of books, actually. Um, but what prompted well, thanks you? For that. Thank, thanks for that long, uh, quite long summary of uh, quite a few of the, uh, the things I've, um, I've, pu- I've proposed in, uh, in various books at various times. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite, quite interesting uh, hearing it back now. That was a short version, Devana. That really was. Um, anyway, I was going to say, you, you, what, okay, you publish a lot of books, but what prompted you to write this book in particular? Well, look, I've 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 been involved in uh, architecture and design uh, research and writing for about over four decades in Australia, and it dawned on me uh, certainly at the just before the start of the of the pandemic that uh, I really had quite a lot of research on board and it just, I literally woke up one night and said, hang on a minute, no one has done a comprehensive narrative history uh, of Australian architecture for a very, very long time. What, what is going on? Why, you know, why aren't you doing this um, if no one else is going to do it? So um, I, uh, I approached, uh, approached uh, Alan and Unwin and uh, they uh, said yes, uh, they would be interested, and that that's been my COVID era project. So um, I've I've had a, a it's been absolutely fascinating to delve into the past because recent books have been more uh, more more uh, focused on what's going to happen with urban development in the post internet era. Uh, you know what are all these new technologies enabled by satellites going to do for us? So. It's been very good to to go back. So while the rest of us were putting on weight, you you actually went and wrote a book. But put, look, put, you can put on weight writing a book, Branko. <laughs> sure you can. So look, so you've included in the book some Indigenous designs as examples of Australian architecture. Um, is this actually? I mean, I've gone through an, a few architecture books in my time, and I'm not, obviously not all of them, but is this a first for Australian architecture histories? And, and do such moves or, such, or, 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 or doing such things, does that increase the knowledge of the lives and, 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 and um, the, the, you know, the, the widespread knowledge of Indigenous, indigenous or, uh, Australians well, or pre-European settlement? Should, well, there, should there be more and, and, and why? Well, look, uh, there's... Uh, there are a number of uh, angles to this. First of all, yes, the previous architectural history books generally have not have been dismissive of uh, of indigenous buildings. 
Uh, basically, they uh, uh, the previous writers and when the last one that that I'm directly following is um, was uh, Max Freeland, whose book uh, uh, Architecture in Australia: A History um, was published in 1968. Uh, since then, there have been a f uh, just in the 70s, there were a few writers on colonial history. And prior to that, there was uh, uh, Robin Boyd, Australia's Home, 1952. And earlier than that, there were um, uh, um, Malcolm Ellis uh, and others. The, all of them have tended to say that the uh, Indigenous people had no, in the words of Robin Boyd, had no use for homes and that they were nomadic and that they didn't bother to um, uh, build anything uh, permanent. And uh, frankly, um, they uh, just said uh, outright uh, that Australian architecture started with, um, uh, started with Francis Greenway. Now that is, in my research, um, that is definitely not true. But uh, so I went back and uh, looked at the early colonial, the, the records of the First Fleet military officers and their writing about architecture. I checked what were the oldest remains, and I'm now presenting at various uh, in various lectures uh, around the place. I'm now showing all the images of all the earliest structures that we know of through through illustrations. Uh, through fo through photographs of of remains of uh, various uh, uh, piles of stones that were that were the very first or the oldest surviving um, uh, uh, indigenous um, shelters uh, down uh, about two hundred to three hundred kilometres west of Melbourne. There there is the re remains of the old post ice age fishing village. Um, and then on um, West Wallaby Island, there is the the old uh, fort that is the remains of uh, the shelter that that Dutch uh, that the the uh, Dutch seamen who were shipwrecked off the of Batavia and uh, the victims of a mutiny um, mm -hmm. built uh, built there in 1629. So um, then we then we have a look at uh, uh, the, uh, the writings of Paul Mehmet, who's the great expert in this area. He's done he's done more ser serious research into Indigenous buildings than anyone. Uh, and uh, he very kindly supplied us with some or gave us permission to use some of his his drawings of um, of how different types of huts were were built. Um, but then there was uh, the uh, there were ver look I could go on about this, but to cut to the chase, there are no illustrations in rock carvings or or painting or old paintings by by Aborigines that we know of of buildings. So they weren't drawing architecture, and there are very few uh, records of the first fleet officers. Of uh, and artists aboard early ships that visited um, Australia, uh, of of anything that would be a permanent structure. So Bruce Pascoe has uh, written a book in the in the nineteen eighties, which indicates that there were whole towns of permanent structures, uh, but the uh, the evidence that he gives is dated from the mid nineteenth century, which is a long way after 
the first fleet arrived and a long way, uh, a long way after, or gives a long period of time for Indigenous people in Australia to have been influenced by buildings that were erected by, by um, Europeans, often using workers who would have been Indigenous. So you learn a lot in, uh, in that period of time of 70 years between the first fleet and, uh, and the mid 19th century uh, discover, explorations and discoveries of, uh, of some of the mid Victorian explorers. Interesting you say, Bruce Pascoe, that, that is exactly what I was going to ask. I mean, we'll get, you mentioned Max Freeland, which we'll get to later, but he actually did, did say that. And so do, are you saying that Bruce Pascoe's interpretation of this may not be correct? Yes, I'm saying it may not be correct okay. uh, in some instances, but I do. I he is he. Is, you've got to understand that he is he is a a very uh, useful, valuable writer in developing the new, developing the the literature that will, in effect, lead to recon, the reconciliation that we all want with with. Um, between the different cultures that are now here in Australia and the Indigenous culture that were the first nation uh, nations people that were here before the Europeans settled. So I'm not against what Bruce Pascoe has to say, but when you look at it in a factual uh, sense, my research tells me that there were there were there were no uh, there, were, there, there is no evidence of permanent settlements at the time the first fleet arrived, mm -hmm. uh, except for the one about 200 to 300 kilometres uh, west of Melbourne, which was, the, which was a, a, a solidly settled fishing village with quite a, quite a, re a reasonably sophisticated, uh, for the period of time it was built, um, uh, system of irrigation and fishing fish traps uh, along canals and so forth. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, you are a very experienced author, as I've mentioned, but to my surprise, actually, I, I actually thought you were an architect and you are actually listed, listed as an architect here and there on the internet, but you're not an architect, designer, no. did you? But you certainly are a very knowledgeable uh, writer on architecture, design and other broader topics. Well, it's very kind of you to say so. So, on that note, did you learn anything after writing this book? And if so, what would that be? Oh, learned a great, great deal. I mean, uh, just every every one of the ten chapters, I uh, encountered many, many architects whose names I were totally unfamiliar to me. Uh, the um, the the issue of uh, of how uh, the indigenous people. Uh, occupied land before before the Europeans arrived. How the Europeans came to different colonies of Australia uh, or settled. Uh, you know, it wasn't just the convicts. It was people. It was free settlers by the uh, by the eighteen um, forties. All you know, different parts of Australia. The sealers and the whalers who lived lived along the coasts, the southern coasts, unofficially. And had their own scenes without any reference to the to the British government whatsoever. Um, and then later on, they learnt a lot about the you know the the development of the evolution of the Queenslander, which I think is really the 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 precedent for you know for what anyone would think of as the the great Australian uh, house. Um, 
must uh, generally the the, the the great criteria. Then I had no I had no understanding of uh, of Francis Gross, who built the first two verandas in Australia, and um, uh, in Sydney. And there were fabulous images of uh, of these. And uh, oh, look, you could go on towards later. I knew, I knew a pretty a, a pretty fair amount about contemporary architecture and everything uh, in most things since the Second World War, because of my previous research into um, well, previous writing and editing. Uh, projects, but I had not much knowledge of, uh, of, or not as not and not as much knowledge of, or in detail of what had been going on um, during the prosperous periods of uh, of the Australian cities, Sydney and Melbourne, were the most prosperous cities in the world at uh, in the late nineteenth century, and uh, because of the gold rushes, were just phenomenal. Mm. So. Uh, our, our our buildings of those cities were extremely grand uh, comparatively with what was being built elsewhere. Well, usually you say that. I mean, even 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 some regional centres like Bendigo, um, you look at some of the structures there, and you know you, you know, you're sometimes you forget you're all Ballarat for that matter. Sometimes you forget you're in a small little country town. And, well, that, they were prospering in the gold rushes. Yeah. Absolutely. think that we don't celebrate our colonial um, uh, architecture enough? I mean, should we celebrate it more? I mean, is there a, could there be a sort of cultural cringe going on? The way I I look at it is like this. There was a period where there was a cultural cringe, you know, you know, that I think up until the 1970s, if you found that your um, ancestor was a convict, you know, you wouldn't be telling anyone. The convict stain. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. But then all of a sudden, 80s, 90s, and, and this century, um, all of a sudden, you want to find, you know, someone who, who was thrown off in chains off in the port, port body. But um, also you want to have you want to have Indigenous uh, blood in you, don't that's you? That's right. That's right. So do you think maybe, and, and you know, so maybe now there's, on, on top of that, there, you know, because of reconciliation and, 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 you know, a better understanding of colonialism, there's another cultural cringe that has happened, okay, sort of in the opposite direction, but still sort of suppressing, I guess, certain certain things. Do you think that we we could, for example, if we renamed colonial architecture, saying, oh, I don't know, early English settlement architecture, there's a there's a marketing exercise for you. Um, yeah. Would it would it work better? Would we look at it better, or do you think that it's really should we look at it? In a ba- at the moment, we look at it in a balanced and, and, and you know, circumspect way. Well, I, I, I have, I suppose the thing that was, that became evident to me is that we haven't done enough to, uh, uh, frankly, people like me who should know a fair bit about Australian architecture, if I'm doing my job as a researcher and writer properly, don't, don't know about the great architects who, who, uh, who built, Phenomenal buildings uh, in in different cities of Australia in in the last half of the of the um, of the nineteenth century and the and the first two two to three decades of the twentieth century. Now those those people, many of those people were really brilliant architects who came out from from Australia. Um, obviously, 
uh, inspired by the gold rush and wanting, ambitious to build buildings of the caliber and scale that they couldn't possibly build in England because they were facing competition from an establishment there that, you know, would, would, would suppress them under a kind of a, a, a hierarchical structure. So there were, there were, there, there were uh, extraordinarily well-educated um, English and Scottish architects who arrived in Australia and were given work that they could not have got so quickly anyway in 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 uh, in, in the UK, and uh, and those people are just kind of only known by you know devoted historians, and generally those devoted historians know about the architects of their city, but not about the the comparable architects of other cities, and they don't tend to know. Uh, often, or most people don't know, that, that a number of those architects actually moved around from uh, and worked, you know, for a period of time in Melbourne, then they might go to Sydney, then they might go and become the colonial architect in Queensland. Uh, and then when the depression hit in the early, in the late 1880s and early 1990s, they all went to Perth because that was booming at that time. How would you compare your book with Max Freeland's 1968 work architecture in Australia history, which kind of is a similar, obviously, um, title there, but that's by the by. Um, well, no, it's, it's very deliberate. I've we've oh, okay. chosen this title to, uh, you know, to, to echo uh, Max's first ever comprehensive narrative chronicle of, um, of the culture of, of Australian architecture. Uh, that, well, there are, I didn't want to be... Uh, just simply updating what Max did. I wanted a different book, and and I felt that where he was incredibly strong is uh, is that he was an architect, and he was very very interested in exactly in things like early building materials, how you would actually build a hovel on the shores of Sydney Cove. Uh, he went into a lot of detail about. Uh, you know, exactly what trees were cut down and which ones were good and, you know, for building and which ones were, were hopeless. And he, he, you know, and exactly what the recipes were for lime, you know, for pre-lime mortar um, and uh, how, you know, how to get the mud to stick and that kind of thing in a wattle and daub uh, uh, cottage. Uh, and uh, so I, look, I am not going to be going into that, level of technical detail and I was my background is uh, newspaper journalism and that's that's where I'm uh, I did my um, apprenticeship in New Zealand and so I uh, interviewed politicians from a very early age and I I understand I understood quite quite early on about uh, how politics operates and uh and so I was interested in, uh, and over here in, in Australia, where I arrived in the late seventies, I became very involved in the uh, culture of art and arch- arts and architecture. Uh, but um, and then I moved more into the science side of the digital science, computer science side of things as a research topic. So my 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 interest in this was to build a chronicle of the of the evolution of the culture of architecture in Australia and to be inclusive of uh, as much as I could discover about the Indigenous um, uh, buildings, uh, but 
but to go on and to and to uh, and to basically concentrate on how the people engaged with what architecture was meaning at, at a particular time and also to explain more about how the economic circumstances and political circumstances um, outside of coming from outside of Australia might would influence uh, would influence the development of uh, of architecture. For a very good example is the development of the overland telegraph line um, right through right through um, from south to north of Australia, and that created a whole lot of need for telegraph stations, a complete genre of, of building in the desert. And there were plenty of there are plenty of other uh, examples, post and telegraph offices all over the country. Well before that, we had to have courthouses and then we had to have a whole series of churches because, uh, in effect, the uh, uh, the uh, the Catholic and uh, and Protestant uh, churches in uh, UK wanted to have footprints in Australia and uh, have can have a lot of control over Australian culture. On that point of culture, or perhaps lack thereof, going through your book, um, you don't seem to give a huge amount of credence to the architecture of suburbia. Oh. Was this on purpose, or does suburbia, in your mind, have no architectural value that deserves to be celebrated? Now, 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 Brecker. I know I'm, 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 I know that that question is a bit loaded or very loaded, but there is actually a reason I'm asking because because you know working in, in my role as, as the editor of architecture and design, um, I find that there is a real I guess I don't know what you want to call it a disdain I guess there's this nice nice word by a lot of architects for what do we have currently in suburbia and, and what we as opposed to what we could have okay? So I'm just wondering whether, you know, what the, how they view suburbia is a bit how you view suburbia as well. No. Uh, look, well, first of all, I mean, we've got 10 chapters. When did suburbia start in Australia? Post and so, it, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't, you know, suburbia wasn't a big 19th century thing. There were the, there were suburbs of terrace houses, and we we show the first terrace houses built in Sydney, Lyons Terrace and uh, Burdekin uh, Terrace, and uh, and and uh, and they were the first first suburbs. But they today they're obviously very urban. You know they're they're they're, they're not really what we today would think of as suburbs. Um, then there were we do go into in quite some depth uh, the development and, and the the idea the first of all the ideas and then the delivery of garden of the first garden suburbs with the, through the town and country planning movement um, that that grew up uh, um, off the back of the writings and diagrams of Ebenezer Howard in uh, 1898 to 1903. Uh, and that kind of went on so that after the First World War, there was a, a massive uh, rollout of, um, of, um, of uh, suburban houses that were quite clearly very, very uh, sort of um, reduced and modest, uh, modest uh, versions of, well, they were really basically workers' cottages, bungalows, but they were inspired by American trends for mass housing um, 
uh, that had come through and they, they were not for bad reason, not I mean, for a very obvious reason. They were known as California bungalows because that was where a lot of the, the tract housing was being rolled out. Yep. Um, uh, two specific designs, very specific designs of bungalows that were very reduced from the big, expansive um, uh, uh, medieval-inspired villas of the of the nineteen of the late nineteenth century. So those uh, suburbs were very reduced in terms of innovation, architectural innovation. They didn't have any innovation. They were just designed to be convenient and comfortable and uh they were they we and they and uh there there were uh, uh there was this issue of uh of of bringing the garden into uh bringing basically having landscaped uh, building houses in in landscaped areas that would allow working people to escape the smoke and smog and health health um, hazards of uh the central the central cities, of which this was the this was the big uh, solution for the dramas of the uh, late nineteenth century in in uh, in European, particularly British, and um, to to a lesser extent American cities were just belching belching coal smoke um, and causing massive bronchial problems. Um, many many people. Hmm? Sorry, lovely, doesn't it? Yeah, not not very pleasant. So then, then obviously after the war, there was another rollout of, of uh, of of suburban housing, and that went on and on and on and continues to go on. And uh, there's much more innovation now in suburban uh, housing. But the one thing I would say is that this book is not uh, Australia's uh, an update of Australia's Home by Robin Boyd. It is an update generally of vastly more than. Uh, than res- residential housing, so we we don't do a lot on of focus on houses at, at the expense of of, um, of much larger and more civic public structures. I'm Brank Homolytic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. And now back to our podcast. On that point, let's talk about sustainability, okay, because it's something that, look, there wasn't a huge amount of of talk about sustainability, excuse me, uh, or at least I should say less than I, I expected is that an indictment of the fact that we don't design in truly sustainable terms, or is it, or did you just run out of room, space, and whatnot? Uh, well, um, not so much run out of room, but the, the term sustainability uh, is one that really cropped up around in the in the nineteen nineties. Now that that is really the towards the end of my chapter nine, which is nineteen seventy five to to two thousand. And it, it it comes up in in in, uh, in my last chapter, which is two thousand and now. So um, we're, so yes, we're not talking about sustainability in uh, up until chapter nine, and uh, and there, but it, now in your role as editor of a contemporary a magazine about contemporary architecture and design, you will be 
inundated, inundated with the rhetoric of sustainability. And I was, I got a fair bit of this when I was editing Architecture Australia during the 1990s. I, I got quite a bit of that. But I, I am sceptical about sustainability. I would not go as far as a neighbour of mine who says, sustainability is simply not sustainable. Uh, but I would say that the process of constructing buildings is inherently unsustainable. And people who pretend that uh, you, you can, in fact, not have an impact on the earth by in, in your building of and designing and building of buildings, that is uh, not acceptable, not sustainable in my concept of uh, the way things are going. So my my I, I, I noticed in the 90s that there were a lot of rating systems being developed and I took the view that this was a stick approach to the problem. And I got in very interested in Buckminster Fuller's principles and, and then our, following him, following his death in the early 80s, Al Gore uh, took over uh, the the, um, the the took the baton from Buckminster Fuller in developing advanced technologically advanced big picture policy global scale policy context for how to manage the planet's resources in in ways that were were um, uh, were in, in Buckminster Fuller's term he never never used the term sustainable but in his terms. Uh, that would manage the world's resources in a way that would give abundance um, to uh, everyone and be more equi equitably distributed uh, through just incredibly efficient logistics and, tech uh, and enabled by future technologies. Now, Buckminster Fuller died only a couple of years after the personal computer got, got onto people's desks. Uh, but um, Al Gore uh, invented in uh, uh, invented the term or coined the term in his 1992 book Earth and the Balance. Coined the term digital Earth, and this was uh, an update of of but what Buckminster Fuller had been pr promoting for the whole of the the um, the, the 20th century. Uh, it's the idea that uh, you can observe the Earth uh, and monitor the Earth using electronics computation systems, automatic systems, and that these will inform you at a level never possible with humans on their own, human communication, and, uh, and that from this you can build a global system of, of managing resources in ways that are, um, are, are more energy efficient and, more, and less wasteful, the, just the sheer waste. Yeah. So this this is a frightening prospect for a lot of people who um, don't want management, don't want to be managed as humans. Uh, and uh, but ultimately, um, if the earth is going to be managed, uh, humans will need to be included in in this kind of uh, development. And rating systems are a very, very early example of how this is going to uh, evolve. I'm glad you said that we don't really build in a truly sustainable way. I, I, I've come to the conclusion that on, on, on this magazine and, and having been, you know, working on the sustainable, um, sustainability awards, uh, that we actually don't 
um, you know, I think it was Michael Moore. I, I can't say he's, he's a huge favourite of mine, but he said recently that that if you know that if you want to live in a modern society with iPhones and TVs and cars and whatnot, you actually can't be sustainable. It's 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 an absurdity. Um, you're going to make carbon. You know, you're going to create waste. You're going to disrupt the fabric of, of nature, no matter how how careful you are. Well, I, I, I mean, absolutely. But uh, um, and I think this is why um, architects, um, uh, big firms of architects in Britain, have you know wanted to join or basically signed up for for the uh, the architectural version of a series of these declarations. Yep. They signed up for architects to clear. Um, you know, I'm involved in a geographic number of geographical societies, and they've got geographers declare. Uh, but architects are in, uh, you know, in a bit of a difficulty uh, about uh, uh, how what they're really declaring versus what they're actually doing. And so, different uh, uh, major firms like, you know, Zaha Hadid and, and others have pulled out of architects declare because it fundamentally uh, they are unable um, to manage the conflict of interest and don't want to um, uh, don't want to. Uh, appear to be uh, doing, uh, saying something different from what they're actually doing. And um, that's, uh, I don't know, certainly I don't think it's it's going to be feasible for architects to solve the whole problem. The solutions are going to have to come down the line uh, uh, through engineers and uh, through the science and technology innovations that uh, are, um, are being worked on. Um, and uh, we'll just see what what happens. But I'm I'm very very positive about the uh, the debates that are going on about the circular economy. I think that's got potential to go through the manufacturing industry in a way that uh, you know is um, is impressive or potentially impressive. Hopefully, uh, and that's I actually agree with you there. I, I think yeah that that is. Um, true, the circular economy bit is something that's, that I'm seeing more and more of, thankfully, um, in, especially whether, whether it be manufacturing or whether it be architecture, um, you know, they're, they're starting to look at, it, and I'm talking large company, you know, the Mervax of the world, for example. They're yeah. Look at circular you know, the economy, which is great. Um, in, terms of, in terms of architecture in Australia, what do you like your your book to actually become? I mean, as a, as a reference, as as, as a, I guess uh, as a conduit um, or, or for change, um, or is it just a history? Or does it just um, talk, does does it just you know illustrate a historical path or a process? Look, I, I I just think it is a very it is it is a way for people who want to know about architecture in a holistic sort of way, uh, who, you know, who want, who want to do a deep dive into architecture and understand what, what you know, what it is uh, in brief. It's not a brief book. It's 360-something or 80 pages or whatever. Uh, but it, it will tell you uh, what you need to know to get you to, to wrap your head around the whole picture of, of what happened across this large continent. And uh, so I think it's, it's ideal for, in fact, I think it's essential 
um, as an update to Max's book. Max's book was obviously intended to be a textbook for um, for undergraduate architects, uh, and it certainly has informed. It, it's you know it's constantly referenced and the subject of many papers by. Uh, the worthy eminences of the Society of Architectural Historians of Australia and New Zealand. Um, and uh, so they write papers about what Max meant by this and what Max meant by that. But ultimately, it's a, it's a, it's a work for people who want to be students and, and people who feel they're dilettantes, but they'd like to be a bit more, like to have a bit more connoisseurship. Uh, if, if that, that's the wrong word, I suppose, but a bit more knowledge, uh, solid knowledge about um, what, uh, who's who in, in different cities, and uh, and they uh, and to, and to know the uh, the, the terms uh, that are used in architecture, fenestration, you know, what does that actually mean, and you know who was good at it and who wasn't. Um, and by the way, I think that fenestration, a very good example, is the much-hated Blues Point Tower by Harry Seidler that, that uh, we look at from our apartment building uh, every day. Um, and uh, and I, I just, uh, I just, so we've included in the book, by the way, uh, sorry, this is where I was leading. We've included in the book three double-page spreads, which give you uh, posters, stamp pictures of uh, buildings that represent all the different styles of architecture that were overseas in particular, that were influential on Australian architects at different at three different main periods of our history. And I think that's helpful. And then we also have uh, uh, single breakout pages, which suggest to everyone um, for each chapter, here's a, here's a particular place uh, that you could visit around the, in different parts of the country that would be really worthwhile as an example of this particular period of architecture. It's a, it's a, like a companion book to Max Freeman's work. It's, it's a compendium a com, and a companion. And, and yes, I would certainly not suggest that you read, if you're really serious about learning about Australian architecture, I certainly wouldn't suggest that this book replaces anything, but it is the most up-to-date uh, comprehensive chronicle uh, given by a single voice, so it's not an anthology of a whole lot of miscellaneous articles by academics. It's a it's a it's a solid linear uh, explanation of uh, of what what what's how we've evolved. And the best thing is, it's not written in archie speak. Um, what very much? <laughs> what, in your opinion, after after writing this year, you write the three hundred and sixty odd page book. What has what, in your opinion, has been the biggest advance in Australian architecture and or design over the past, say, 200 years? Oh, the biggest thing, the biggest thing by far is the emergence of computational satellite-mediated technology by far. This is just making possible and, 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 no, and just types of buildings on a scale of ambition that has just never been possible in history. It is a complete global, global transformation. It's a revolution in how buildings are, can be conceived and actually delivered. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's, it's too early for many people to quite realise how big this is, but it just it leaves the old post and beam construction, uh, you know, 
way back. <laughs> it's a bit like, I mean, in, in just in the way that 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 the, the biggest transformation, digital technologies amount to one of the, th- it, it, frankly, the third huge uh, revolutionary transformation in lighting design, in lighting, uh, the same thing is applying in architecture that, that you, you are operating off the electromagnetic spectrum in in uh, in other words, you're you're uh, you're you're dealing with the impulses of light. The concept of architecture uh, as impulses of light affecting buildings is you know it's just mind mind boggling. And when you think about all the robotics that'll be built into the buildings, it's it's certainly not just you know steel reinforced um, concrete uh, high rise towers anymore. That's you know that was that that was the big phenomenon of the early twentieth century, but it's um this is something way way beyond that. If there was one building or structure that that you feel we needed to redesign, what would it be, and why? See that all of these buildings are serving a purpose of some sort, and many of them are. You know, many buildings, but I mean, for for instance, apartment buildings are very unpopular with a lot of people. Uh, but they serve and they they serve a purpose. And I, I don't think there is a type of building that I think is wrong. Uh, even I, I, I mean, the most unpopular buildings at the moment are casinos. Uh, but I I don't. Uh, in just in strictly architectural terms, I don't know that that the the design of the building that contains a casino is necessarily well is 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 a bad thing is a bad building uh, and should be knocked down and replaced by some other type of building that you know that might contain a casino because it's just the fact that the Casino is inside the building. That's really the cause of the of the of the hatred. Um, and in this case, obviously, I'm talking about the Crown Casino at Barangaroo, but obviously the same problem occurred down at uh, Crown Melbourne uh, back in the day. So um, I'm trying to work out what building type of building is so bad that you'd have to replace the whole type of building. I'm, I can't come up with one, Branco. Well, that's actually um, not a, that's actually an answer in itself because that is a very sustainable answer, really. I mean, if you don't have to knock it down, if it, if it serves the purpose that you want it to serve, whatever that purpose may be, basically saved a, a bucket load of carbon, really, um, by not knocking it down or re-ripping out the guts and, and, and redoing it. So that's actually a pretty good answer, I think. Well, you, you, you're not going to build a building unless somebody's going to pay for it. Um, and so s- people are building buildings because they they need them or feel they need them or they want them for some for some reason to do to contain certain functions and uses. And I mean they do get obsolete, and it's a question of whether you have to knock something down because the purpose that nobody can think of a, of, of another useful profitable use for it, and that's the big problem, of course, with historic buildings. But um, I, I, I can't. I just can't think of a type of building. I mean, the, just because the purpose is the purpose is gone or the purpose is obsolete, doesn't mean that the building wasn't. You know, the building itself 
is is a uh, is a waste of time and should be uh, shunned and never done again or whatever. Dr. Davina Jackson, author of Australian Architecture History, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Branko. Thanks for the opportunity. No, your, your, your book is wonderful and it is available at all good bookstores and I do believe Amazon as well, is that correct? Absolutely, Booktopia, yep, Booktopia. Uh, all the online suppliers. Well, Thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been lovely to talk to you again. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. Mm -hmm.